So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapters, uh, chapter 8, and we'll, we'll go 8, 9, and 10 this week. But let's pray. Lord, uh, we love you, Jesus. We thank you for all the ways that you are at work, God, ways that we're aware of um, and in ways that, that we don't even see or we, we don't recognize uh, your, your goodness in our lives and in our world. Uh, Lord, we pray now as we come to your word, as we, we come to 2 Samuel 8, 9, and 10, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open your word to us, that we would be able to see you, Lord, that we would be able to see ourselves, God, that you would change us as, as we dig into your word. Uh, Lord, I know it is strange for us to sit here and listen to a sermon through a screen, especially as um, our lives have so much listening through screens right now. So I pray that you would help us to pay attention, that, that you would uh, dial our hearts and minds in as we come to your word, God. And, and we, uh, we thank you that, that we have this option right now um, during this pandemic. Lord, we love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Uh, our truth statement for today is God shows his kindness to undeserving people, offering a place in his kingdom. God shows his kindness to undeserving people, offering a place in his kingdom. Last week, we we're in chapter 7. David had this plan that he was going to build for God a permanent residence. He was going to build a house. God had been in the tabernacle, which was this tent, this movable temple. And David was sitting in a palace and he said, this isn't right. I'm going to build for God a house. And God reversed that on him. He said, no, David, you're not. Actually, I'm going to build you a house. He told David that he was going to give him peace, that he would give him rest, that he was going to make his name great. And then he said that he would have a son on the throne forever. That, that through the line of David, there would forever be God's king reigning. He also said he was going to plant Israel, that they would have a place. And some of that, um, some of those promises to David would be fulfilled in his lifetime. Obviously, many of those would come in the future, long after David's death. But in chapter 8, we get to see some of the immediate fulfillment, that some of these things were coming about uh, for David and his kingdom. And this, of course, was a sneak peek into the kingdom of God. Now, God indeed was planting Israel. And the place that he was giving him was the land that God had promised to Abraham. It extended from the Nile River in the south and up to the north uh, to the Euphrates and the Mediterranean on the west and then clear over to the desert of the Jordan Valley. So before David, this promise had been made to Abraham and it had only been partially fulfilled. But now under David, as God's king, this great promise reached new level of fulfillment. And this is really what chapter 8 shows us, that God was fulfilling his promise that he made to David. He's fulfilling this promise to his people. And right away in this chapter, one thing that you notice is that it's God that's giving David victory over their enemies, just like he had promised. And this is said in both uh, verse 6 and verse 14. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Israel's enemies had always been a problem for them. And on their own, 
They'd not been able to defeat their enemies. And certainly this made it difficult for this nation to establish itself. But God made sure to give David and and because of David, Israel, victory. This showed that God was able to save Israel and their king from every enemy that they would encounter. And we remember that this is why Israel said they wanted a king way back in 1 Samuel. They wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations. They wanted a king, they said, that would go out before them and that would fight their battles. But Israel had forgotten that it had always been God who fought their battles for them. It had always been the Lord who had gone out before them. And he now had placed a king of his own choosing. First, he gave them King Saul, the king that they demanded. But now, David was the king that God had chosen for his people. And David was victorious in battle after battle, but it was always because God had given them victory. As you read scripture, we read about Israel, we've got to remember it's like looking into a mirror. We are so quick to forget like they were that it's God we need to fight for us. That the victory only comes through him. We can't save ourselves. We can't find anyone else to save us except for God's chosen king, King Jesus. I wonder, are you trying to fight your own battles? Do you forget that Jesus is the one you need, God's promised king? Well, in verse 13, the narrator tells us that David made a great name for himself. And there are some people that look at this and they wonder, they speculate, is this David forcing his name to be great, or is this what God had promised? And I think it's what God had promised. God told David that he would make his name great. And this verse is sandwiched in between verses 6 and 14 that I mentioned before that that said that it's the Lord that gave David victory. Well, then we get to verse 15. It says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And it'd be really easy to read verse 15 and kind of blow by it and just get right to chapter 9 without recognizing the weight of these words. First, I want you to notice that David did reign over all of God's people like God had promised. And second, this kingdom is described of one uh, as one of justice and equity to all, of, uh, all the people in the kingdom. We're used to, uh, in this day and age, being distrustful of leadership. And whether it's elected officials or CEOs of uh, large companies, or or maybe it's world leaders or even church leaders, uh, we're jaded, right? We we are, uh, we're skeptical of leaders because we've been burnt by leaders or, or we've heard the stories of leaders that seem like they're decent, But then we find out that behind closed doors, they're making deals that benefit only themselves. And they leave this wake of their people behind them, wounded and bleeding. Well, David's kingdom, while it was by no means perfect, as we'll see next week, but this kingdom, a mark of this kingdom was of God's people that were under David, that there was justice and there was equity for all God's people. And no doubt it was a preview 
for the kingdom anticipated under King Jesus, a king who will rule with perfect justice, perfect righteousness. There will be perfect equity for all God's people. And I find myself longing for that more and more. And I know that by God's grace, there are a lot of good things that do happen in our world. Um, and we're seeing that, I think, even in this pandemic. Um, it's incredible to hear some of the stories uh, about medical professionals, uh, stories about teachers going above and beyond um, what's required of them in this time. Uh, I loved hearing the story about um, the, uh, the factory workers that were making the masks and they agreed basically to, to live in the factory, to lock themselves away from the rest of the world for 30 days and they're pulling 12-hour shifts so that these PPEs that, that we desperately need could be made. I heard a story about a teenager near uh, the beginning of Shelter in Place um, that he, on his own, he came up with this idea to make a food delivery service uh, for seniors that really shouldn't be out and about shopping. And within a matter of days, he'd started this, this nonprofit and he'd, he'd uh, built a website and this, this platform with the infrastructure to have volunteers uh, be able to help go shopping for these people that are vulnerable. And some of these people that couldn't afford uh, food delivery, uh, and he made a way for them to get their food as safely as possible. So I celebrate stories like that. I'm thankful for the people that are putting out those good stories that are happening in our world. We need those. But we know that for every good story, there are plenty of more stories about injustice in our world. Oh, it's not hard to find stories of greed. We don't have to dig very deep to find evil, evil things that are happening. I long for God's kingdom to one day be here on earth as it is in heaven when God will fully defeat all evil. And I love uh, the picture in Revelation uh, where, where it says that heaven basically is going to cheer when we see God's justice fully executed. I love to cheer. Right? I love going crazy at sporting events. And whether it's a blazer game or a kindergarten soccer game, like I go nuts cheering for my team. Um, I, I'm that dad, right? I'd probably paint my face if my kids would let me. But I tell you, I cannot wait to cheer at the sight of God's perfect justice. And it's hard to even imagine, but, but John tells us in Revelation that we'll see God's justice and we will go crazy over God's perfect justice. So I know verse 15 is short, but we, we don't want to miss the preview that it is for God's kingdom and the perfect justice of our King Jesus. Well, chapters 9 and 10 show us uh, the extraordinary kindness of God's King. And, and it gives us a couple ways that we can respond to this kindness. A couple examples. So the first is in chapter 9. You'll remember that King David had an enemy, King Saul. Um, at the time, Saul was the king. Even though David uh, had been anointed king, Saul was the king. And there's a lot that could be said, but basically Saul was threatened by David. David was faithful. He was a faithful servant of Saul, way beyond what you would expect. And yet Saul made attempt after attempt to murder David. 2 Samuel 9.1 
And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And if we're only thinking of Saul, then this is a giant surprise. But you have to remember David's best friend, Jonathan. If you know the story of Saul, you probably know about Jonathan, the son of Saul, the one who was in line to be king. He would be the next on the throne. And he became David's best friend, God's chosen king. And he pledged his allegiance to David. He symbolically gave the throne over to David. David and Jonathan had a deep, deep love for one another, a deep friendship. They had sworn their allegiance to each other. And Jonathan, back in 1 Samuel 20, he made David promise to show him steadfast love. And interestingly, the the word for steadfast love, it's the same word used here for kindness. And, And he didn't just make him promise to show steadfast love to himself, but to his ancestor, to to his kids and his kids' kids. Um, So years later, after Jonathan has died, David was going to make good on his vow to Jonathan. Now we can't just chalk this up though as David being a really, really kind person. Verse 3 calls David's kindness the kindness of God, right? This is an expression of, of God's kindness as we see David's kindness. This is a picture of the steadfast love of the Lord, a dependable love, an extraordinary love, an extraordinary kindness. It affirms that the Lord shows his love, his grace to people, not because they deserve it, but because he chooses to love them. So as we read this story, and if you didn't read this story, I would encourage you, read it multiple times this week and meditate on on it. Uh, Think through the implications for us as God's people today. And I'd ask, do you want to be the recipient of God's kindness? So as we we read this, this passage, as we go through it today, remember it's giving us a glimpse into the kindness of Yahweh. And maybe you already know that you need God's kindness shown to you. But maybe you don't. Maybe you don't recognize yet that you need God's kindness. Well, continuing in the story, a man named Ziba is brought to King David. He was a servant of Saul. David asks Ziba if there's uh, if there's someone in the house of Saul that he can show the kindness of God to. And Ziba informs him that Jonathan has a son that's still alive. And the only description he gives of this son is that his feet are crippled. Now we've heard of this son back in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. This is Mephibosheth. Years ago, when the news of Saul and Jonathan's death reached the city, uh, Mephibosheth was just five years old. And, And the nurse in charge of his care picked him up to flee. And in haste, she dropped him and his His feet were permanently crippled. Now, maybe Ziba shared this detail that Mephibosheth was crippled to let David know that, hey, this relative of Saul is no threat to the throne. And you can understand that maybe Ziba didn't fully trust the enemy of King Saul. But as readers, 
we can see that what the narrator wants us to know is that, that David was being informed of the great need that Jonathan's son had. And we can imagine what it was like with a disability back then. Right? How much harder it was. E- even today, with all the resources that we have for people with disabilities, every disability brings with it unique challenges. Not insurmountable challenges, but it, it adds challenges that not everyone else deals with. So you can imagine for Mephibosheth, like how great it would have been just to have a wheelchair, although there wouldn't have been any place that was really suitable for a wheelchair. There certainly wasn't um, an Israeli Disability Act thinking of people like Mephibosheth. He was a man that was dependent on others to help him. So David finds out that Jonathan has this son. And this son, we're told, lives in in some obscure place. And there's some people that speculate that he was hiding out, hoping that David and those loyal to him wouldn't know that there were still people from the family of Saul alive. So David sends for Mephibosheth. And you can imagine people coming to your door and hearing that the king wants to talk with you. This would be scary, right? If, if a teacher has asked to speak with you or your boss, your first thought is, man, am I in trouble? But this is way worse. He knew the stories of his paranoid grandfather trying to kill David multiple times. And now he was being escorted to see that king. I'm sure he'd heard of enemy after enemy that David had conquered. He no doubt had heard that David killed the giant Goliath, that, that he took Goliath's head and sliced it right off and took it as a trophy. And now he was going to appear before that king. I doubt, though, that he knew of the promise that David made to Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, So in verse 6, he appears before the king. And what he does is he falls on his face. He makes it clear that he's a servant of David. He is no enemy of the king. We see Mephibosheth is humble before the king. He understands that he is at the mercy of the king. That the king has authority to do whatever he wants with him. This is what it says in verse 7. And David said to him, do not fear. Which if you've read your Bibles, you know that when, when do not fear is said, so often something really good comes after that. So it says, do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. So David is restoring the land that belonged to King Saul. Well, we don't know how much it is. No doubt the king had a ton of land. But if that wasn't enough, he was making a place at his own table for Mephibosheth to eat at. And we'll think through the significance of that in a little bit. And this might be, I think it is, one of my favorite images in the Old Testament. But Mephibosheth, he couldn't believe his ears. This was a reversal. Family of the king's enemy expected punishment. They expected maybe to be killed. They certainly didn't expect kindness. Verse 8, he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Outside of David's words to Jonathan, 
This makes no sense. And you could actually argue that this goes beyond what David had promised to his good friend. Mephibosheth is overwhelmed by the kindness of the king. And he questions, why would the king show kindness to such an unworthy recipient? Do you find yourself still astonished by the kindness of God? Do you, do you realize, do you recognize that God blesses you not because you deserve it, not because you did something good, not because he owes you something, but just because God, in his benevolence, he loves you? Or have you come to expect that God should be kind to you? Have you become puffed up with pride, thinking that maybe God owes you something? Maybe you recognize that you're a sinner, but as far as sinners go, you think of yourself as being pretty decent. We can take note, we should take note of the humility of Mephibosheth. We should compare and contrast our humility before the Lord with his before David. Well, David goes on to order that the land be restored uh, of King Saul to uh, this son of Jonathan. And, and Ziba, we find out, and his household, they're all to become servants of Mephibosheth. Ziba had 15 sons. He had 20 servants of his own. And they were all now at the disposal of Mephibosheth. Verse 13, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And then the chapter ends by saying, Now he was lame in both feet. So Mephibosheth moved to Jerusalem. We're told that he always ate at the king's table. He no longer lived in this obscure part of the kingdom, but now he lived at the center of the kingdom. He enjoyed fellowship with the king at his table. The king had invited him, and remember, he compared himself to a dead dog. He invited this dead dog to be with him at the very center of his kingdom. And we remember the justice and equity mentioned in chapter 8 of David's kingdom. And we see that that justice and equity in this kingdom means kindness even to enemies, even to enemies who are crippled. Chapter 10 will give us a, another look at David's kindness, uh, the kindness of a king, but a very different response. And the question that we as readers should ask, our, ask ourselves is how do I respond to the kindness of God? Do we recognize that this kindness from God is completely undeserved? Do we accept the invitation to fellowship with the king, to this intimate relationship with the king, or do we reject God's invitation? Do we rebel against the king as we'll see in this story? This chapter begins by telling us that the king of the Ammonites died. 2 Samuel 10.2 And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. So this is a little bit surprising. We don't know uh, how uh, Nahash was kind to King David. We're never told. But whatever it was, David intended to show kindness now to his son who's grieving his father's death. So David sends his servants. And as you can imagine, uh, when a king died, there was a period of at least potential instability. Even if it's clear who the next king is to be, nobody really knows what that king will be like once they're given power. 
We don't know if this king will be better than the old king. Or maybe this king will be worse. And there certainly uh, was opportunity for other nations to come in and take advantage of this instability. But David's motives, we know, they were to console this, uh, this king's son, Hanan. Hanan's leaders and advisors, they hear about David's men coming and they don't trust the intentions. Right? So they get in the new king's ear and they convince this newly crowned king that these were spies. That the men sent by David had only come to spy out the lay of the land so that they could take over the city. And it worked. But Hanan didn't just say no thanks to David's servants. No, he despised the kindness of King David. He completely rejected his kindness. He humiliated the men that David sent. What he did was he shaved off half of their beards. And the beard represented a man's dignity. Shaving it often expressed sorrow. Now having it forcibly shaved, this would have been humiliating. This this would have been physical abuse, psychological abuse. But that wasn't all that they did. They cut their clothing right in the middle at the hips and, and then they sent them back. So here are these men. Half their beard is gone. They're, they're at least partially naked and they've got to make their way back home. Well, David finds out And he tells his servants that they should just hide in Jericho. Let their beards grow back. And once they come back, once their beards have grown back, they can come home. Again, this is just a little picture of the kindness of the king. He understand what they'd been through. He didn't demand that they come back and do the jobs that they were supposed to do for his kingdom. He, He let them wait. Until their beards grew back. He showed them kindness and allowed them to come back with all of their dignity. Well, while David wasn't happy about this, he didn't make the Ammonites pay for this. Or you could say that David was slow to anger, uh, a picture of God being slow to anger as scripture tells us over and over again, that God is patient with us, wanting us to come to him in repentance. Well, the Ammonites, while David didn't strike, strike out at them, the Ammonites did realize that, that David didn't like this. It says that they had become a stench to David. But you would think that maybe they would reach out and try to make things right, but they didn't do that. They didn't throw themselves at the mercy of King David. They didn't make an appeal to his kindness. They didn't try to make amends at all. No, they didn't try to reconcile. What they did is they got ready for battle. And not just with their people, but they hired from other nations. They hired uh, foot soldiers from the Syrians and from the men of Tob. So instead of trying to reconcile, instead they dug in. They were determined to be defiant to God's king. So David heard about this and he sent Joab and his men. And and we remember Joab. Joab is a a mighty warrior. Joab uh, split the army in two. He would lead one and his brother would lead the other half. If one needed support, the other could help them. Now Joab... Uh, we don't really view him as being this uh, really godly character, but verse 12 might be the best words that he ever said in his life. He said, uh, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of God. And then he said, And may the Lord do what seems good to him, or the Lord will do what seems good to him. Literally, the Lord would do what was good in his eyes. So Joab, we see this confidence in, 
in the Lord. He trusted who the Lord was and what the Lord would do. His words expressed a faith in knowing that the Lord is good and does what is good. God decides what is good, not us. It is good for us to remember that. And by faith, we can enter into any circumstance that the Lord leads us to and know that God will do what is ultimately good. We might not understand it. We might not get to see what is good in a situation this side of heaven, but we can trust in God. So Joab and the troops lined up for battle. And the Syrian uh, foot soldiers and the Ammonites were there. And the text actually doesn't say if there was a battle. We just know that the Syrians fled. And the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, so then the Ammonites fled. There's no mention at all of bloodshed. And for a time, the conflict is over. Joab didn't pursue for whatever reason. But after a while, it says that the Syrians regathered. And again, instead of leaving Israel alone, they were determined to fight them. Well, King David heard this. And this time, David didn't send Joab. David himself came. And I think this signifies a real change, that he was done with this nonsense. His patience had run out. He had extended kindness multiple times. He had shown grace. But now there would be consequences for the rebellion against God's king. Well, the battle was decisive. It was decisive victory for David and Israel. There was much bloodshed. And eventually the Syrians wised up and realized they were toast. They were outmatched and they submitted to David and Israel. Verse 19 and when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazar saw that they'd been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subjects to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. So after the bloody battle, they surrendered. The Syrians made peace. They submitted to David and became his subjects. And we don't find out right here what happens to the Ammonites who initiated all of this. But they didn't figure out what the Syrians had figured out. They didn't make peace with Israel's king. And as I said earlier, this story lays out a couple ways that we can respond to God's kindness. And it's asking us, which way will we choose? Do we choose, like the Ammonites, to reject God's kindness? Paul talks about um, God's kindness in Romans 2 Verse 4, he says, Or do you presume, or one translation says despise, uh, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you despise God's kindness and patience like the Ammonites and the Syrians? It is God's kindness to us, his kindness to rebels that leads us to repentance, that helps us come to recognize the unfathomable mercy of God and leads us to accept His grace. But we can reject God's kindness. Paul goes on in verse 5. He says, But because of your hand and your impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In this story, David was patient. He was patient with the Ammonites. You could even argue he was patient with the Syrians. But eventually, the patience ran out. Right? There will be a day when God's wrath comes to all who decide to reject His kindness. 
So you can respond to God's kindness like the Ammonites, like the Syrians, or do you respond like Mephibosheth? He was blown away by the kindness of King David. He was humbled before his king. He couldn't believe the offer that the king made to him. I had a friend that was offered a job uh, with this startup. And at the time, it really was his dream job. He didn't have any real uh, work history in this area. Uh, He didn't have a resume that was worth noting. Uh, But the owner of the company invited him to dinner one night. And my friend didn't really know why. Uh, He didn't know why, but he accepted the invitation. And after a while, after some appetizers and some chit-chat, the owner got down to business and offered him a job. And you have to understand, my friend was a a pretty uh, dramatic person. He was kind of larger than life. So his response, I'm sure to people in the restaurant, was quite surprising. But knowing my friend, it was actually pretty fitting because again he did not deserve this shot that he was being offered so anyway the the owner offers him this job and again my friend's dramatic and and in the middle of this restaurant he stands up and kind of shoves himself away from the table his chair falls over and really loudly right everyone's listening already he says no way why me and i wonder is that how you respond to god Right? Do you say, no way, why me, God? Why would you bring me into your kingdom? Lord, why would you forgive me of my sin? Jesus, why would you die for me? Because I'm like Mephibosheth, I'm just a dead dog. Why would you give me grace? And I told you, I, I just love the picture, the imagery of Mephibosheth coming to the table, King David's table. In chapter 9, at the end of verse 11, it says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. David invited him to eat at the table with him. Mephibosheth was invited in to fellowship with the king. He's granted intimacy with God's king. And the verse says that he comes to the table and he eats there like one of the king's sons. It's incredible. But just think about Mephibosheth. Right? Since he's five years old, everywhere he went, people noticed his crippled feet. Right? He walked differently than everyone else. I'm sure people stared at him when they saw him. He wasn't able to do tasks that everyone else took for granted because their feet worked the way they were supposed to. He didn't have the same opportunities that others had because of his crippled feet. He couldn't provide for his family. I'm sure there were times when he didn't feel like a man. And then one day, that knock comes at the door. And he comes before the king. And the king invites him to his table. And Mephibosheth comes. Every meal, he sits there at that table. He sits as a son and eats with the king. And at the table, his messed up, broken, crippled feet are totally covered. No one sees them. At the table, the king has made him whole. Why wouldn't you take that offer? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you offer us life, that that you offer to cover our brokenness, to take away our sin, that you offer us an intimate relationship with you where we can know the king of all kings. 
Lord, I pray for my friends, my family watching this video, thinking about you and your kingdom, thinking about the love, the kindness, the steadfast love that you give. Lord, I pray that we would respond to your love, that we would trust you, that you are good, that we would give our whole selves to you, that we wouldn't reject you, that we wouldn't rebel against you. Now that we would leave our rebellion and we would submit to you as king of our lives. And Lord, I pray that we'd be so radically changed that we would want to tell everyone about this king and this kingdom. Jesus, we love you, Lord. Will you help us? to live lives that make you, that, that make your name great, that show the greatness of who you are. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.